All right, so we're starting a new book today, 1 Timothy. And I want to, want to give you a little background on 1 Timothy because it's important. Two chapters or two books, 1 and 2 Timothy, they're called pastoral epistles. They're, they're, uh, 1 and 2 Timothy along with Titus are the pastoral epistles. What does that mean? They're letters by Paul written to pastors, Pastor Timothy and Pastor Titus. We're going to see in the next uh, several weeks as we go through these epistles. And it's interesting because these two epistles, these two letters, are strong in the area of discipleship. Discipleship. See, Timothy was a disciple of Paul, and they're both disciples of Jesus Christ. And we're going to learn some great principles as we go through these books on discipleships. And it's a very important stuff because Jesus doesn't just want us to be decisions for Christ. He wants us to be disciples. What are disciples? The word means those that are disciplined in learning those that are growing. God wants you to be not a first-base Christian where you just you know, get to first base and get saved and that's it. No, he wants you to hit a home run. He wants you to round the bases. He wants you to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He wants you to be people that are like Psalm 1 people that are like that tree planted by streams of water and your leaf doesn't wither. And whatever you do, you prosper. And God blesses. And he helps you grow. My, that's my job as a pastor, by the way. My job, uh, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, says my job is to equip the saints for the work of service. And we do that through the teaching of God's word. And I want you all to be growing disciples of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to learn some great lessons on discipleship as we go through these books. And uh, again, background is Timothy is the pastor that Paul's writing to here. Timothy was left behind by Paul in Ephesus. Ephesus was the city where one of the great churches in the Roman Empire was started by Paul. It was such an important place that Paul spent his longest tenure of any church that he started in his three missionary journeys. He stayed at Ephesus for three years. The only one that even came close to that was Corinth, where he stayed for 18 months. And as Paul was there in Ephesus, he discipled leaders there, and he raised up elders. But then he left, and he sent Timothy to take over as the pastor at Ephesus. And now a little bit about Timothy. Timothy was, again, a disciple of Paul, a protege of Paul, his right-hand man, if you will. And Paul goes back with Timothy all the way to his first missionary journey where he came to the city where Timothy lived, which was called Lystra. And Paul preached the gospel there. And like many other places, wherever Paul preached the gospel, there was spiritual warfare, and there was either a riot or a revival or both happening at the same time. And so uh, he riled up some people there that got upset with him and his preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they brought Paul out to the edge of town and they stoned him to death, killed him. Second Corinthians 12, he talks about that, that he had an out-of-body experience. He went to the third heaven and then Christians around him were praying for him and then he was resuscitated and he was brought back to life. You know what Paul did after that? If it was me, I'd be very tempted. I'm out of here, man. I'm out of Dodge. He went back into the city and preached the gospel some more. And one of the people that probably got saved that time was this young man they called Timothy. Came to Christ. Most scholars believed in Paul's first missionary journey. He led Timothy to Christ. Because we're going to see in the scripture this morning, uh, Timothy is called a child of Paul or a son of Paul in the faith. And so after that, Paul went on his way, first missionary journey. Then he came back on his second missionary journey, came back to Lystra, and he found that this Timothy had really been growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ, growing in his faith. And we're told in Acts chapter 16, when he was in Lystra, it says this, Paul came to Derbe and Lystra, and a disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of, this Timothy, by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted this man to go with him. And so he took Timothy and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. 
So Paul takes them on his missionary team now. Now, this Timothy had quite a spiritual heritage because he had a mom and a grandma that had sown the Word of God into his life. We know that this mom and grandma also became Christians also. We're told in uh, 2 Timothy 1.5, For I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, Timothy, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that's in you as well. And then listen to the heritage that these Jewish moms sowed into Timothy's life. 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them, and that from childhood you've been known the sacred writings, which is the Old Testament scriptures, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And so this Timothy got on Paul's team, and he became a disciple like no other disciple for Paul. He became Paul's right-hand man. And it says in, in Philippians 2, 20 to 22, talking of this Timothy, I have no one else of kindred spirit like this Timothy who generally be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not of those of Christ Jesus. But you know of Timothy's proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving with his father. You see that? Spiritual son of Paul, this Timothy. Now, what Paul's going to do in this first section is he's going to talk about the importance of God's word importance of God's word in our daily lives as Christians and in Timothy's life as a Christian too. The, the middle of this section of, of verses 1 through 11, Paul says this, the goal of our instruction, the instruction of God's word is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So the title of my message this morning is the goal of God's word. What's the goal of God's word? We're going to see four different goals of God's word. The word goal there, interesting word, telos, it means the aim or the target. What's the aim or the target of God's word in our daily lives? We're going to see that in this section of Scripture this morning. So let's jump right in. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. If you're there, say amen. Okay, here we go. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to who? Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, first thing I want you to see here, interesting, typical Pauline greeting, grace and peace. Almost all his other epistles, he starts with introducing himself as Paul, as an apostle, and then he, he grants to the other uh, churches that he writes to grace and peace. What's he add here to Timothy? Mercy. And you know why? Because as a pastor, he'd not only need grace and peace, he needs some mercy too. And I, I can relate to Timothy. Hey, I need mercy. I need, I need not only God's grace and peace as a pastor, I need God's mercy. I need mercy from you all. And listen, Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So when I do something knucklehead as a pastor, give me not only grace and peace, give me some mercy too. Amen? And then it's interesting in this scripture too, he talks about his calling, his direction in life. And look what he says, going back to that scripture, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus according to to the commandment of God. The commandment of God is going all the way back to when he was struck down on the road to Damascus. The direction of life that he was going before he got struck down on the road to Damascus was he was a Christian killer. He's a persecutor of the church. And the scripture says that Paul was actually breathing murderous threats, stomping his way to Damascus, looking for some more Christians to imprison or kill. All of a sudden, that voice from heaven, the commandment of God came to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, the one you've been persecuting. 
And then God commanded him. He said, and, and, and God made it clear to him at that point, you're not only going to be forgiven of what you've done, you're going to be called to be my apostle, not only to the Jews, but my apostle to the Gentiles and the kings and the magistrates. Ananias was told to meet with Paul, and Hannah said, I don't want to meet that guy. He's a Christian killer. And the, the voice from heaven said to Ananias this, going back to the, the, book, uh, the book of Acts, and it, it, says, it said to Ananias, it said, but the Lord said to him, go for this Paul as a chosen instrument to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Do you see that? That was a commandment of God, redirecting his whole life. That's the first thing that God's word does for us. It redirects us. It directs, it sets a direction for our lives. And as you get into God's word, your whole direction of life starts changing. You know why? Because God's word is a lamp under your feet and a light under your path. You know what that means? As you get in God's word, he lights up your path and he directs you. And church, we need that. Christians, we need that. Because the world's trying to direct us in a different way. The world's trying to direct us to live by the lust of our flesh, the lust of our eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And as we get into God's word, what God's word does, we get commandments from God. Go this way. Don't go the way of the world. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove the will of God. That was good and acceptable and perfect. And the more time you spend in God's word, the more you're going to get your direction set, like, just like Paul. And if you're going the wrong way, you get into God's word, it reproves, it rebukes, it corrects, it trains in righteousness, and it gets you going the right way. That's the first purpose of God's word is to set the direction for our lives. And to reset, because Paul was going the wrong way. He was imprisoning and killing Christians, and God's commandment came to him on that road to Damascus, and God's word spoke to him, and he went in a whole different trajectory, a whole different way. It happens to me all the time. I'm reading God's word. I need to hear from God. I need a decision that i got to make. And I don't know what way to go as I'm studying God's word. Just God speaks to me. He directs the way, the path. He lights up the path in the direction I'm supposed to go. And I tell you what, another thing it does for you too is, if, man, if you're going the wrong way, God's word, whoo, convicts, doesn't it? It convicts. It's, it, the Bible says God's word is like a double-edged sword. It's sharp, and it'll convict you. And it will convict you that you're going the wrong way and you need to go the right way. That's the first thing God's word does is it sets the direction. It's the light in our, our path. It sets the direction for life. did for Paul and it will do for us also. Now, go on, verse 3. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Interesting. Nor to pay attention to myths Endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Here's what Paul's telling Timothy as a pastor. Instruct. Instruct people what? God's word. Because instruction is important because there's blowing through the church strange doctrines. Myths. Man-made speculations. Stuff that man's just making up that's wrong. And how do we correct that? How do we get away from the fables and fairy tales and this man-made speculations and the myths and the strange stuff by the preaching of God's Word? God's Word, that's the second thing God's, God's Word does for us. It, it not only sets a direction for life, God's Word guards us from false teaching and strange doctrines. That's why Paul told Timothy, 
Going back to 2 Timothy, Paul told Timothy this, I solemnly charge you, 2 Timothy 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. What does he tell Timothy? Preach the word. Be, be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but want to have their ears tickled to accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside the myths. And friends, we're in that time. We're in that time. We're in that time where all throughout the church, winds of doctrine are blowing through that are just strange man-made myths. How do we guard against that? How do we give way to these winds of doctrine that blow through the church that just aren't true? They're myths. They're speculations. They're man-made stuff. How do, you, how do you stay true to the truth? The Word of God. The Word of God is what corrects the myths and the strange doctrines. And I've been there. I, I've been in the ministry now for 32 years or 33 years, and I've been a Christian now for 40 years. And I've seen some strange things blow through the church. I'm telling you, when, when I was in seminary, it was in the mid-80s, the whole thing of the signs and wonders movement was blowing through the church. And there was some weird stuff going on with that. They were, they were, they were basically saying that Christians could be possessed by demons. Now, I get, uh, demons could possess people, but demons can't possess Christians. Because what does the Word of God say? Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And the Word of God corrects that. But I remember they were having this whole thing of demons being possessing Christians. And we had seminary classes on signs and wonders. And the leader of this whole movement would come in and teach this class and teach that demons are possessing Christians. And I mean, it was, I was, I was, it was weird because basically I remember they'd be praying for people. People would be falling on the ground and shaking and screaming and everything. And I was looking for exit signs. I'm going, wow, God, this is, this is in seminary. That's false doctrine. Demons cannot possess Christians because the Word of God says greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Now, demons can oppress Christians. Demons could tempt Christians. Demons could attack us as Christians, but they, demons can't get inside of us like, like those out in the world. Now, we do, uh, Jesus made it clear casting out of demons is proper and correct for those that aren't Christians that get possessed by those things. Let's set those people free and pray, pray for them. But don't believe that if, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, you can have demons inside of you, because the Bible says otherwise. Uh, and then I remember also pastoring our second church in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. We were up in Oshkosh, and all of a sudden, this whole other strange doctrine was blown through the church. It was called the Toronto Blessing. And if you really wanted to get blessed, you had to go up to Toronto, Canada, to this church, and receive the blessing. And people were going up there, and there was a whole movement of what's called holy laughter. Now, I'm up for laughter, I love joy. In the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy. Hey, my last name's Hoppy. I'm always Hoppy. I love laughter. I love joy. Joy is a part of the Christian life. But they were being taught up there in the Toronto, Toronto Blessing that during the worship, you all need to start hysterically laughing. And it was just like a wave go across all these people. And they said, oh, like this. And just crazy. And then they started teaching that you're supposed to be uh, making these animal noises during worship. Supposed to be roaring like lions and barking like dogs. And everybody's like, woo, woo, woo. It's just like, what are you doing up here? How do you guard yourself from that craziness? By making sure anything that happens in your church has biblical precedence. 
And you need to stick with the Word of God. And if it's not biblically sound or in the Word of God, we're not going to stick with it. And we're going to stick with the preaching of the Word of God. That's going to be central. Experience is not the key. The Word of God is the key. Yeah, experience is good. We want to experience the Lord. We want intimacy with the Lord. But we don't want to get off into strange doctrines that aren't found in the Word of God. And as long as there's bald preachers up here, or the other bald preachers up here, Oh, we're going to make our emphasis the preaching of God's Word. Whether it's in season or out of season, we're going to stick with the Word of God. And we were discipled well with this by our founding pastor, Calvary Chapel founder, Chuck Smith. Every time I went to a pastor's conference for years, Pastor Chuck would have the senior pastors all out to California, and he would train us in this. He was like a broken record. Every time Pastor Chuck would bring all his pastors together, he would tell us, Guys, preach the Word. Hold the course. Simply teach people God's word simply and stick with the word of God. Don't go any, don't make that your priority, the teaching of God's word. And that's the distinctive that sets us apart as Calvary Chapel, is we are going to stick with the word of God and teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help us, God. Amen? Amen. And that's going to keep us away from that stuff that's blowing through the church. We're not going to hold on to stuff that's not biblical because we're trained in the Word of God. And that's what keeps us free from the strange doctrines that blow through the church. And the latest thing that's really blown through the church, one of the latest things you see it on all the t- oh, most of the, a lot of the TV preachers, is this whole thing of name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. Blab it and grab it. If you speak it, God has to do it. Now, faith is important. I believe our prayers need to be prayers of faith. God does heal. God does answer prayers. But God's ways are higher than our ways, the Scripture says. And sometimes his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And sometimes God in his sovereignty has different plans. And we need to accept that. The Bible makes it very clear that even with the Apostle Paul, he had a, a thorn in the flesh, probably, probably his eye problems or some kind of physical ailment. He prayed three times. And the answer from heaven was, my grace is sufficient for you. And in your weakness, my power will be made manifest. And Paul, no, I'm not going to heal you because it's, I'm using this ailment that you have to keep you humble and have my power be made manifest in your weakness. And so we need to stick with the Word of God and what we believe and what we practice. And the way we stay away from the weird things that blow through the church is we stick with the Word of God. The Word of God keeps us away from strange doctrines and myths and human speculations that man makes up. Because this book... Is inspired by God. It's authoritative. It's inerrant. It's God-breathed. And our authority on what we, our faith and practice needs to be based on the Word of God and not man's speculations. Amen? All right, so let's go on. Second thing then that the Word of God does for us, the goal of the instruction is to set the direction of our life. First, second thing is to guard us from false teaching and strange doctrines. And now, look at this, verse 5. This is kind of our centerpiece verse for our section on the goal of God's Word. But the goal, verse 5, of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Again, the word goal, telos in the Greek, is the aim or the target. The aim and the target of the instruction of God's Word. It's love. Pure heart. Good conscience. Sincere faith. You know what? This third point really is of the goal of God's word, the purpose, the target of God's word is this, to keep our hearts right. We need it to. 
We've got a world that's trying to pollute our hearts with filth and garbage, worldliness, immorality. One of the wonderful things about God's Word is as you get into God's Word, read God's Word, meditate in God's Word, hear God's Word taught, as you study God's Word, what happens is Ephesians 5.26 is we're washed by the water, the Word. Oh, what they're doing at Calvary Chapel is they're brainwashing you. Yeah, and I don't know about you, but I need my brain washed. And I need it washed by the water of the Word. And as you have God's Word sown in your life, it washes, it cleanses. What's our memory verse for this week? Psalm 119, 9 and 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping according to thy Word. Thy Word have I treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. And here's what happens. You get into God's Word. You read, you meditate, you hear it taught. Produces love in your heart. How's that? Because all this book is filled over and over again, chalk filled with scriptures about how much God loves you. And the Bible says we love because he first loves us. And you get into this book and it'll start reading verses like, again, God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but has eternal life. You read verses like Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Get into the Gospels where Jesus said, hey, greater love has no man than this. They laid down his life for his friends. Amazing. Amazing love all throughout this book. And as you study about God's love for you, it puts in your heart a love for him, for other people. And as you get into God's word too, not only does it produce love, it produces purity. Because again, it washes you. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does that mean? Intimacy with God comes from having a heart that's washed by the word. Intimacy with God comes from having a holy heart, because your heart's in God's word. And then it also says, hey, you get into God's word, you get a good conscience. What is a good conscience? We all got consciences. What it is, part of being created in God's image is we have this moral compass of conscience that says this is right and this is wrong. But the problem is the world, what the world does is it sears and calluses our conscience. We get involved in sin and worldliness and we start getting, what's a callous? It starts desensitizing your heart towards right and wrong. How do you get that moral compass back? God's word. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14 talks about this. As you get into God's word, it's a solid food for the mature. And because of, because of getting into God's word, it starts helping your senses be discerning good and evil. It trains your very senses to be, this is wrong and this is right. And we need that. Because we've got a devil out there and demons out there that are trying to callous and sear our consciences so our moral compass is off. And then also it says, hey, God's word keeps our heart right by giving us not only a good conscience, but also a sincere faith. What is a sincere faith? The word sincere there, interesting word, it's, in the Greek it's, it's without wax. And what they, had, what they did in that first century Roman Empire is, is they'd have sculptors. And you, you, a big part of landscaping in that day is you'd have sculptures in your garden. And some of the some of the artists, the sculptors, they'd sometimes crack a nose off a statue and they'd still be able to sell in the marketplace. They'd put wax on the nose with some marble dust in there. And then when you get your statue home and the sun starts beating on your statue, all of a sudden you look at your statue, it doesn't have a nose anymore. And so it's sincere, it means without wax, it means you're the real deal. And a part of being the real deal as a Christian is you have a sincere 
faith. It's not fake. It's not phony. It's not saying, I believe this, but live in this way. How do we get to that point of being sincere Christians? By being people of the Word and people of the Spirit. I need God's Word in my life on a daily basis so I can be the real deal. That's one of my biggest goals as a pastor, too. I want to be living when I'm preaching. Now, does that mean I'm perfect? No, I make mistakes every day of the week. Does that mean I, 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 I don't stumble? No, I stumble. But listen, I am doing my best to be seeking first his kingdom and righteousness so that when I'm preaching to you, I'm not a fake up here. I remember hearing an interview between two mega church pastors, and I met both these guys. So it was on James Dobson on Focus on the Family several years ago. And I remember listening to these guys because I had, I had been to conferences where these guys spoke, and I knew who they were. They had two of the largest churches in America. And I was interested in what the interview was going to transpire. And, and James Dobson on Focus on the Family asked him, what's your biggest challenge right now as pastors of these huge churches? The first guy came up, and he said, my biggest challenge is we just bought 120 acres of land in Southern California, and we're trying to get permitting and building and everything, and we're just working. It's so hard to build in Southern California. It's so expensive. He went on and on about that's his biggest challenge as a pastor. And then this other guy who I knew, a large church in Chicago, was asked the same question. He said, and I, I, I really liked his answer. So my biggest challenge as a pastor right now is living an authentic Christian life and the busyness of pastoring this huge church. He said, my biggest challenge as a pastor is to make sure I'm in prayer, I have a real relationship with Jesus Christ that continues to change my life. And I heard that on the radio, I go, I like that answer. That's what I want to do as a pastor too. I want to be the real deal. I want an authentic, Christian, sincere faith that I could say this is real and it's changed my life and it continues to change my life. How can I do that? By being a man of the word by being a man that reads God's words, meditates on God's words, studies God's word, hears God's word taught by other people. That helps me to have a mind that's washed by the water of the word and a life that's sincere and real. And church, I want that for all of you too. I want Christians at Calvary Chapel to be known as not only having a pure heart, a good conscience, love, but sincere face where you're the real deal. And people can say, well, you, you guys at Calvary Chapel, you're a little bit out there, a little bit different, but you're, you're real, and your Christianity has changed your life. Amen? Amen? All right, last point now. So the third point, again, was to keep our hearts right, to keep hearts of love, pure, pure hearts, good conscience, sincere faith. But look at this last part now. It says in verse 6, for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Have you met people like that? I made the mistake when I was at University of Illinois, this large campus, of taking some religious studies classes. And I'll never forget this, religious studies classes, because you had these guys with PhDs and everything else. And they were agnostics, and they were atheists, and some of the professors I had. And they were teaching me about religious studies. And I was that guy in the back of the, the class when they were talking about how the Bible's wrong and has all these contradictions contradictions and textual criticisms and you can't believe literally what the Bible says. I was the guy in the back of the class, raise my hand. Raise my hand. And I said, no, this is what the, you're saying this about the, but this is what the Bible says. And it was funny because eventually they wouldn't answer my questions. They just would ignore me in the back of the class. 
but fruitless discussion. People that say they know what they're talking about, they don't. Be careful listening to that. But we know that the law is good. And one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for the righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers or murderers, and immoral men, and homosexuals, and kidnappers, and liars, and perjurers, and without else, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, when it's speaking about the law, it's talking about the commandments of God within Scripture. And what it's saying, what is the purpose, ultimate purpose for the law? It's for the lawless. The law wasn't necessarily for us. All the law you see throughout the Old Testament, all the Old Testament commandments, all those things ultimately are for the lawless to convict them that they're lawless and they need a Savior. That's what Galatians tells us also. It says in Galatians 3.24, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. You see, our problem as human beings, apart from God, our biggest problem is we don't think we got a problem. Our biggest problem is we see we're fine. I'm just a good person. I'm as good as this person next. I'm, I might be even better than my neighbor next door. And God grades on the curve anyway. So if you're a little bit better than the next guy, you'll get into heaven. You're fine. Is that what the Bible says? No, that needs to be corrected with God's word. God's word, God's word says none of us are fine. All men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible is very clear. The wages of our sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I remember back in the last generation, there was a book that came out. It said, I'm okay, and you're okay. And the whole book was about the fact that we're all fine. You know what? That's a lie from the pit of hell. Because the biggest burden to coming to Christ is to realize you're not fine. You're a sinner that needs a Savior. I'm a sinner that needs a Savior. I think I should write a new book. I'm not okay. You're not okay. But Jesus can save us anyways. Amen? And we all got issues. Pastor John's got issues. You got issues. And if you don't think you got issues, that's an issue. Because we're all, we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And what it's saying here in this last section, the purpose of the law, the purpose of the Word of God, what it's saying here is to show lawless men that they're lawless. To show kidnappers and, and murderers and homosexuals and all the people out there that are living in immorality that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. I remember when it happened to me. 1978. I had this guy witnessing to me. I've talked about him often. His name is Bruce Barkley. He, he witnessed to me for months. I, I'm, I'm just this stubborn Dutch guy that does, it's, man, I'm stubborn. And I thought it was fine. And he'd tell me about Jesus, and I'd say, I'm fine. I'm a Christian, Bruce. I, I, I go to church on Christmas and Easter. I'm an American, right? I have no Buddhas on my wall at, at my fireplace. I'm fine. And I'll never forget, he got so frustrated one day. We were walking home from school. He got so frustrated. He told me two things. He said this. He said, first of all, John, you're not fine. And, and if you were really a Christian, he looked me right now, and he said, if you were really a Christian, you wouldn't be living the way you're living. You wouldn't be living in immorality with your girlfriend. You wouldn't be partying on the weekends like you party. You wouldn't be talking, because I would swear like a sailor back in those days. You wouldn't be talking the way you're talking. If you were really a Christian, 
you wouldn't be living the way. And it was like a sword stabbed me. Conviction. That was the law. He was convicting with me with my, from the law of God's word and my lifestyle. And then he said this. And, and you know what? I'll quit you know, telling you you're not fine if you just take a challenge and read God's word. One chapter a night of the Gospel of John. Read it for the next month or two. And see if God speaks to you about the fact that you're not fine. And, I, and if you know Pastor John at all, if, it's, if I get challenged on something, a lot of times, even as a Christian now, if it's not illegal or moral, if you challenge me, a lot of times I'll, I'll, I'll go for the challenge. So I said, fine. I'll read the Gospel of John. And then he also challenged me, start coming to, me to Tuesday Night Young Life with me. And I did. I started reading the Gospel of John a chapter a night. And I started hearing God's Word being taught from the Gospel of Luke, actually, at Young Life on Tuesday nights. I did a chapter a night. And at first, it was kind of fuzzy. I never really studied God's Word. And I was reading the stuff, and I'm Nicodemus, what is that? Born again, what is that? But then I read Scripture like, For God so loved me that He gave His only begotten Son for me. Then I read other Scriptures that talked about how I needed to pass from darkness into light, from death to life. And as I was reading that, night after night, all of a sudden I realized, ooh, I'm lost as a rock. I think Bruce is right. I need Christ. And if I had died right now, I'd probably go to hell. And I remember after a couple months of reading God's word, hearing God's word being taught, bent my knee, February 1978. I said, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive my sin. I admit it. I'm not fine. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And I was in the car of my young life leader, and he led me to Christ that February 1978. And it saved me. I heard an amen from a baby back there. It saved me. And it all started with the word of God convicting me that I was a lawless sinner in need of a savior. So question, what's the goal of God's word? The goal of God's word, first of all, is to set the direction for our life. If we're going the wrong way, it sets us back in the right, right way. The second goal of God's word is to guard our hearts from strange teaching, man's speculation, Stuff that's just and fables and fairy tales. God's word keeps us on track to believing the real truth and not man-made stuff. The third thing, God's word guards our heart. God's word helps our hearts to be pure, to have good consciences, sincere faith. Right, it keeps us on track to be the real deal. We need that. Authentic Christianity comes from being people of the word that are washed by the water of the word and keeps our heart right. The last thing that God's word does for us, as we saw this morning, is it tells us we're lawless and we're sinners and we're in need of a savior. Amen? Amen. So church, let's stick with the word. Let's be people of the word. Let's be people that believe in this book and study this book, and read this book, and meditate on this book, and let this book be taught into our lives. Let's not believe man-made stuff. Let's believe the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God, because it will keep us on the right path. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, we just thank you so much for your word today, God. Thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Thank you, God, that your word sets the direction for our lives, Lord. Thank you that your word guards our hearts from false teaching. Thank you that your word, God, keeps us to have hearts that are filled with love and purity and good consciences and sincere faith. faith. And thank you, God, too, that your word keeps us away from strange doctrines that are, are just weird out there and keeps us at a place where we know that we need Jesus. Father, I pray for anybody that might be here this morning that needs to commit their lives to Christ or recommit their lives to Christ. May your word and what we just studied make that clear to them this morning, God. And I pray, God, that you might be knocking on the doors of some hearts this morning of people that want to either commit or recommit their life to Christ. May they do that this morning, God. You love each person in this room so much that you gave your best, Jesus Christ, to die for their sins. And now, Father, I pray that we would be people that are real, sincere, authentic Christians that are living out what we're believing in your word, God. Help, forgive us, Lord, for those times where we fall into hypocrisy or, or stumble and sin and whatever else. And Lord, lead us on that path even this week of seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness so you can add all things unto us, Lord. Thank you again for church, Lord. Thank you that we could have this time in your word and be washed by it this Sunday morning. We thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name.